Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to Locked in Science for another week. This is half an hour of science on your radio. And yes, 2020 has been a strange year and we are still recording our show from our houses. We haven't seen each other in person yet, but that doesn't mean that we don't have half an hour of incredible science for you today. My name is Claire and this week on the show we have, which is a incredible oracle of information when it comes to the COVID vaccines, Alanta Colley. She's a public health nerd, she's a science communicator and an all-around excellent person and she's going to give us an update on some of the COVID-19 vaccination programs that have been releasing news at what can only be described as a breakneck speed. It's sort of like whiplash trying to keep up with COVID-19 vaccine news at the moment. Stu, have you been keeping up to date with COVID-19 vaccine news? I absolutely have. I'm not sure you want to throw around <laughs> words like breakneck and whiplash while trying to maybe <laughs> convince people that it's all safe and it's a good idea. But yeah, no, look, it's it's pretty amazing. I mean, seeing on the news, the UK saying they're going to roll out vaccines by the end of this week. It's crazy. By the time some people are hearing this, there'll be already yeah. people vaccinated. So yeah, pretty pretty amazing when, you know, only a couple of months ago, they were still saying, you know, maybe next year, maybe late next year. You know, there was no real definite... Uh, timeline up until very recently and now the timeline is it's right upon us it is less a timeline and more uh right now isn't it yeah yeah more of a queue really more, more just, of a queue yes. form an orderly queue and and <laughs> and uh wait the turn speaking of things that take or have taken a really long time which are really good ideas i caught up with Dr. Angela Patterson, who is from the Plant Breeding Institute in the School of Life and Environmental Sciences at the University of Sydney. Now, you might go, University of Sydney, that must be in Sydney, right? Yes, it is. But her campus <laughs> is actually in Narrabri, which is oh, way out. Way shout out, out the, to Narrabri. Yeah. Up way in the, the New England region. It's on the, yes, yeah, roundabout, sort of near Tamworth, mm-hmm. out on the Newell Highway. Um, but she's done a lot of work. She used to be a, a wheat breeder. She worked on chickpea breeding. But now mm. she's actually looking at some ancient grains from Australia. which <gasps> Amazing. Which, which First Nations people were collecting and grinding up into flour and making into food for thousands of years before any Europeans arrived in Australia and, and, you know, basically cleared the place and filled it up with sheep and wheat and all these other things that we eat. So she's actually investigating the the realities of can we actually farm these indigenous grasses for their seeds and maybe use some of the plants that are already adapted yeah. to 
life in Australia, whereas she, you know, she used to be breeding plants to be better adapted to survive here. Well, there's mm. all these plants that are already surviving here, so she's looking into those. And so I had a, a bit of a chat with her about how do you go about doing that? How do you mm. find out what um, what is edible, what tastes good, what is easy to grow, all of those sorts of things. So, yeah, we had a big chat and you can listen in to that later in the show. Oh, well, that sounds excellent, Stu. I can't wait to hear the first part of this interview this week. Um, and for our listeners, you'll be able to hear the second part on Locked in Science next week. Okay, on with the show. <laughs> in Science does go out all over the country and lots of people do live in the country as well. And one of the big industries in Australia is agriculture and the wheat and sheep and cattle and all those industries that we rely on for our agricultural income in Australia, pretty much all imported by Europeans a little bit over 200 years ago. But there was obviously a lot of people living here before then who were also eating and living off the land as well. And with me today, I've got Dr. Angela Patterson, who is from the University of Sydney, from their Narrabri campus, who has been looking into Australian Indigenous plant species, which might hold some potential for being agricultural crops in the future. Thanks for joining us on Lost in Science, Angela. Thanks, Stu. Excited to be here. So as I was saying uh, you know, Australia does have the reputation of being a very agricultural nation, certainly since European settlement. And once they discovered the the miracle of superphosphate, it became highly productive and very viable to be farmers in Australia. But globally speaking, we've got four major staple crops. We've got our potatoes, we've got our corn, we've got our wheat, and we've got our rice, none of which are from Australia, and yet we grow a lot of, certainly a lot of wheat and rice in Australia. Why don't we grow any Australian plants agriculturally? It's a really great question, Stu, and um, this is a journey I'm still learning. So I got trained in how to grow wheat, and I did a lot, many years of study at uni in learning how to, to successfully grow introduced crops in Australian soils and Australian climates. But um, the more and more I read about and talk to traditional knowledge holders of the, the grasses that have been grown here for thousands of years and, and eaten just in bread and, and in food products, just like all around the world, the grains have been, um, the more I'm learning, gosh, we're crazy for not really looking into this more and, and talking more and developing these grains more for a modern market. So your, your background is in, in, I guess we could call it traditional agricultural crops in in wheat and I think chickpeas you were working on as well? Yeah, yep. So I, I studied in the big city and I took a job out at Narrabri uh, seven years ago. Okay, and you, you initially started off doing wheat and chickpea breeding out there? 
what were you trying to breed them to do? <laughs> uh, well, heat and drought tolerance. So, okay. yeah, trying to improve the ability of um, wheat to do well when it's hot and dry and, and same for chickpeas, using just traditional plant breeding. Um, and it's been fun. And those crops are still very important and they're always going to be important for food security. Um, but, but what we're looking at in the native grain project is um, talking to local Aboriginal people here on Gomoroi country um, and then also around Australia and seeing how can we bring back the grains that are already heat tolerant and already drought tolerant, don't need any modification to be able to do that and then incorporate it into our diets. So I guess um, you, you're kind of in the early stages of, of figuring out, you know, what's what's even edible, I guess, which by talking to people, you've been able to figure out what was eaten locally pre-European times. So how did you go about sort of uh, what's the next step after figuring out, well, it's not going to kill us. What do we do then? <laughs> Um, well, the first step, like you said, is, is figuring out. So it's a lot of eating. So it's a really good science project because <laughs> I'm required by my job to eat and eat freshly bred, freshly cooked over hot coals as many times as I can. So it's a great job from that respect. Um, so what, we, what we've done is collected as many grains that we know had previously been eaten and then ground them up to flour and then just, just tried. So um, we have Johnny Cake making days out on country. And then we also do stuff in the lab and um, taste, aroma, colour, um, properties of the dough, like how, how hydrated it is and how well it rises or doesn't rise. Then also the nutritional properties as well. So there's a, there's a, a category of grains that are eaten and that might be you know dozens of species. And then there's categories of grain that are also easy to grow and edible. And then within that category, there's a few, maybe five or six that we think are going to be commercially viable. So they're easy to grow and they taste good. And economically, we can probably make it happen. And they're nutritious as well, presumably. Well, absolutely. And this is, comes because they're quite small seed, but they're very high in protein and micronutrients and they're all gluten-free. So, the, and that's that's an, uh, an interesting thing as well. So the, I guess the traditional ways of cooking with these grains, are they transferable to you know your your local bakery style of of making bread and that sort of other thing or would they be better suited for other kinds of cooking the the bread that we eat is a beautiful beautiful white fluffy loaves of bread or whether they're loaves or, or rolls or scrolls or whatever um the, the types of properties that make those foods are really unique to wheat um gluten is it's gotten a bad name, but it's actually really, really important in the way that it makes the bread perform like it does. So would native grains do well in a bakery loaf? Well, compare it to an, a gluten-free flour rather than compare it to a wheat is probably a more accurate comparison. So if anyone's gone to a supermarket recently or tried or eaten a gluten-free bread, you'll notice that it's usually heavier in texture um, and it, it, it doesn't kind of flop around in the same way. It doesn't kind of, it's not as spongy. Um, so that's closer to what um, a native grain would be. But usually native grains are also darker in colour as well. And that's because of the micronutrient content of the grains.
and welcome back to Locked in Science. And we have with us this week Alanta Colley, public health professional, expert, I would say. <laughs> nerd. Maybe. Like nerd. nerd. Public health nerd. I like that, Alanta. Alanta, your updates on the COVID-19 vaccine and where it's up to has kept me feeling clever. Uh, I feel like, though, things are going real quick at the moment. They really are. And I think we, there was this big sort of dead patch where we didn't hear anything about the, the the trials or where they were at. We sort of, about, I think in July, there'd been noise that November would be the big kind of time when the results would be out from the phase three trials from the big players mm. um, and heading off to the regulatory bodies in, in different countries. But uh, we weren't sure. We weren't sure yeah. what was going to happen next. It was all very quiet. And then, boom, suddenly... <laughs> We've got Pfizer, we've got Moderna, we've got AstraZeneca all filing their their phase three trial results with the the regulators and getting approval. And this is the week, this is the week that we're seeing um, the Pfizer vaccine being rolled out in the UK. It's a very exciting time. And what's actually happened in the UK is that they've gone through emergency approval. And right. I sort of dug into what that meant. And that means that Regulators have done a cursory look over the, the data results and they're happy that this is a safe and effective vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine, and they, given the emergency, which is the state mm-hmm. that the UK is currently in, they're hitting some yeah. of the highest rates of fatality that they've seen with the with COVID so far, they have given the green light to start rolling it out. And I, I believe Boris Johnson and others are going to be appearing on television <laughs> either already have or or going to do so soon, actually receiving the very first doses of the Pfizer vaccine. Right. So they've gone with the Pfizer vaccine. Yeah. Yeah. Can you run us through those three candidates again? I mean, I feel like they're household names almost now, but just to get it clear in our heads what each one is and where they're all up to. Yeah, absolutely. So Pfizer were the first across the line. They were the ones who announced um, basically at the same time as the US election, but they were, they're they not part of Operation Warp Speed. They made very clear that they have no <laughs> not received any US funding. But, uh-huh. but this is a really exciting vaccine. They made uh, US-based Pfizer and the German partner BioNTech made this vaccine and it's made from mRNA technology. Mm. And this is a really exciting one. This is the technology that has never been used never been uh, made into an approved vaccine before. People weren't sure it could be done. And, uh, yeah, what that actually means is that the mRNA vaccines, they have a blueprint for the antigens, which are a specific part of a pathogen uh, uh, that the body can then use to identify uh, subsequent Mm. encounters. So it inserts a little bit of the, the blueprint into the cell, which then makes the antigen, which then gets pushed out of the cell, and that's when the human body immune system kicks in, and that's actually when we start developing the immune response. So it's very exciting to actually see this approved and out. And this has been a massive breakthrough for for vaccine technology. I believe Moderna are similar. They're also, and please correct me if I'm wrong, I think they're also mRNA technology. Um, The next big one is AstraZeneca. They've used quite a different path for their vaccine. They've gone with uh, an adenovirus, which is a respiratory virus, a chimp adenovirus, actually. And that's the sort of casing that virus that they actually use the spike of the protein of COVID to insert that inside the adenovirus and introduce that to the body. 
AstraZeneca was interesting. This was the first first big trial to kick off. It was designed by the Jenner Institute in uh, Oxford. I would say it had the biggest backing. It had over 33,000 mm. people in the phase three trial. It had really great breadth across the world. Yeah. But then, we, and then we saw, and I think it was around September, we saw that pause. The whole trial stopped for a week when they had a, a mystery illness and they never revealed exactly what that illness was. But mm-hmm. there was enough concern that this illness might have been a response to the vaccine. They paused the trial and then they got back underway uh, a week later. So that was a big incident we saw in that trial. And then in the past couple of weeks, there's been another <laughs> big incident um, as AstraZeneca crossed the finish line with their, their trial data and sent that off to regulators. What actually came out was that there'd been a manufacturing issue and that some of the people in the AstraZeneca trial had received a half dose for their first shot and then their second shot, which normally happens around 21 days later, um, they'd had a full dose. So that was one section of their their um, their trial and another group received the full dose the first time and the second time. Right. So it's pretty common with these COVID-19 vaccines that you've got two doses taken a couple of weeks apart. Absolutely, um, yeah. But for this AstraZeneca one, they were supposed to get two full doses, but by some sort of error, a certain number of people within the trial got a half dose and a, and a full dose. That's, that's completely right. And what was really interesting is in the group that got the half dose and the full dose, they actually ended up having a 95% efficacy rate. 95% turned out to be then immune to COVID-19. Whoa. Whereas in the group that had the two full doses, the rate was actually 65%, which was much lower. It's thrown a lot of um, doubt onto their results for some very Mm -hmm. good reasons. One of which is that they actually, it looks like what they did was average the results of the two groups and then sort of what? announced that the uh, <laughs> that their vaccine was, you know, 75, 80% effective, which is not good science. It's not how it works. <laughs> so AstraZeneca have actually said they're going to go and start another trial. And the, the question is, does that need to take another six months? Will this limit the um, dissemination? Because mm-hmm. even at 65%, that's high enough for the regulators to give AstraZeneca the green light. That has been the the finish line for these trials was 50%. They had the they they were told they needed to produce a vaccine that was produced 50% efficacy. That means that mm-hmm. at least 50% of the people who get this vaccine will be immune to to COVID-19. Yeah. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you are listening to A Lost in Science. The other interesting question, and I guess something that a lot of people are going to be asking at the moment is, you know, with with these vaccines, um, some technologies that haven't been haven't been used before, what what do we know about any long term effects? The answer is we don't. Uh, and and I was really curious, sort of, because we hear this a lot, you know, it's only been under trial for, for six months. It's only gone through phase three. Phase four is, for, phase four trials often don't actually happen, according to Norman Swan. Mm. What actually happens is there is a register of everyone who receives the vaccination and then any incidents are reported back after, you know, once it's out in the wild, once it's been um 
because by the time you release it, you want to be pretty safe, like pretty sure that it's quite safe. Yeah. I did look into it. I, I had a look around to see if there were examples of, of vaccines that had had long-term effects that people had concerns about. And there were two that sort of came to the top. Uh, the first is the SARS vaccine, and this actually halted the, the vaccine in its tracks. What actually happened uh, that people who'd received the vaccine who were then later challenged or exposed to SARS, a very small percentage had what I would call a hyperimmune response. They had mm. respiratory inflammation. Their, their bodies, that they did have immunity, actually overreached and was attacking benign cells. And that wouldn't have happened if they hadn't had, had, had that vaccination. And a similar thing happened with the dengue vax, which was... Uh, a dengue vaccine that was rolled out in the Philippines. And what they actually saw was 1% of, of children who received dengue vax, if they were then exposed to another strain of dengue, had, again, that, that hyperimmune response. They had inflammation. Right. And the really interesting thing about that is that happens in the wild as well. So there's, there's mm. four to five strains of dengue. And if you catch one, you, you recover over a period of time, but if you're then exposed to uh, the, one of the other strains, your immune system goes into can go into overdrive and it can actually have hemorrhaging internally. So that's really interesting. If we see the vaccine creating immunity against one strain, it you know we we might see that second strain. So the big question is: Is this coronavirus similar enough to other coronaviruses out there? that this actually might be a risk, that if you got exposed to one of the many coronaviruses, your COVID-19 vaccine might actually um, create challenges and, and a hyperimmune response in you. So that's, I guess that's probably the question that, you know, a lot of the, the regulators are having to ask at this point. And probably another good reason as to why um, <clears throat> why it's not such a bad thing that Australia hasn't um, started our vaccination, our COVID-19 vaccination program as of yet. That's it. And the more time we have, the more information we have. And for example, we might find that one particular group like children, um, children have been very underrepresented in, in the COVID trials. Um, I don't think any children under the age of 12 have been involved in, in the phase threes and pregnant women haven't been represented either um, mm. they have done fairly well on the other age groups and people who are immunocompromised and others um, mm -hmm. but they there's certain cohorts they don't have the data on and you know we might even have that situation where we we don't vaccinate children mm -hmm. um, they the the risk is either deemed low enough that it's not a concern or the risk is high enough too high <laughs> for children yeah. um, because we've got different immune responses at different ages and the other thing I've been hearing a bit about recently is that there isn't certainty around whether the vaccines protect against the coronavirus disease or they protect actually protecting against the virus and actual infection of the of the virus. Have you have you come across that? Is there is there any research and testing around around that distinction? Yeah, so I think that is an important distinction. You know, coronavirus doesn't disappear once we, we vaccinate. Um, it may vary unless we – there's only one one thing that we've ever vaccinated to the, the full extent that it's completely disappeared off the earth except for two vials, and that's smallpox. 
every other mm. every other disease that we've come up with a vaccine for is still out there in some capacity. We've got very close to eradicating polio. Might happen in our lifetimes, might not. There's still a few pockets mm-hmm. out there. So this means even though you get the vaccine, uh, you might still be exposed to the virus. And what the companies are saying is that these vaccines, they don't stop infection, they stop disease, they stop uh, the development of severe um, severe disease happening. So you might still get, you might still have a sniffle and it might actually be COVID-19, but it will hopefully stop that, that, that next step of where you end up with the challenges of the damaged tissue in the lungs. And that's actually something our bodies are doing every day. We have we have mutating cells. We have pathogens in our body every single day. That's that's I guess you'd call that infection. Um, but our body can can deal with that. We actually only call it disease when you start seeing significant amounts of tissue damage, when the rate of replication of a virus or a bacteria is at the point that the immune system isn't keeping up, and you actually need. Uh, you need external support, you know, in the form of medicine to actually step in. So we will probably still have the coronavirus around. Um, we may still get the infection. It might be more like a minor cold and it might remove some of that um, infectious capacity as well. I, I don't know that for certain, but normally you're more infectious when you are iller with a disease because more uh, virus is actually being produced in your body. So it's not... A few people are worried about that, but uh, mm. I, yeah, I think we, we will have coronavirus in our lives and in our world for some time to come. It'd be very unlikely the virus will disappear, but hopefully we can really see this downward trend of, of fatality from this disease. have time for on another episode of Locked in Science. Locked in Science is recorded on the lands of the Kulin Nation uh, and normally recorded in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. Locked in Science is broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Please get in touch with us. You can email us. We are lostinsci at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter. We are there. We are Lost in Science one or you can find us on uh, the Facebook. We are Lost in Science on 3CR. Or just tune in again next week, wherever you find us, when Stu, Claire and Chris get locked, locked in science.
Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.